If you want to turn your Bibles with me tonight to Hosea chapter 8, I invite you to do so. Beginning in verse 1, I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version. And in that version, you'll hear is the actual covenant name uh, that God revealed to his people, Yahweh. Put the trumpet to your mouth like an eagle. The enemy comes against the house of Yahweh because they have trespassed against my covenant and transgressed against my law. They cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be smashed to splinters, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no growth. It makes no flower. Should it make anything, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish. Because of the burden of the kings of king of princes... Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are counted as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. But Yahweh has not accepted them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt So Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, and I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Amen. This is the word of God. Pray with me. O God of Israel, Judah, our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We thank you again for every portion of your word. We thank you for your servant, Hosea. We thank you for this hard word. We thank you tonight that you have us here. And we pray that in these next moments, that by your grace, your word would be profitable to us. We pray that we would, far from considering it a strange thing, would cherish every every line, every word, and trust that you have a purpose for us being here tonight. We who are here to hear this word, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this is another sermon by Hosea warning the nations of Israel and Judah that judgment is coming. It is coming in the form of foreign armies that will come upon Israel. Verse 1, put the trumpet to your mouth. That's an allusion to those uh, 
lookouts that would stand on the gates of Samaria or the walls or the walls of Jerusalem. And the idea here is, is telling them that there are going to be watchmen who have to blow the trumpet sounding alarm because these foreign armies are going to invade the land. First, Assyria. Assyria, by this point, is already invading Israel in the north. And then over a hundred years later, in the south, in Judah, Babylon eventually will come. So God's judgment is coming upon Israel and Judah. And we're not going to take time to look back at Leviticus, I think it's chapter 26 and then, or 29, and then Deuteronomy chapter 28. But there, God spelled out the covenant curses that would come upon Israel if Israel ever departed from the law, what we know as the Ten Commandments, or summarized in the Ten Commandments. And God's law was clear. God taught his law to his people. It was spelled out in, in a very simple language. God gave his precepts, his instructions. And yes, they were explained in a lot of detail, but God also gave them to them so that even the little boy or girl of Israel could remember the Ten Commandments of the law of Yahweh on their ten fingers. Did you ever think about that? What a, what a wonderful tool by God to give to little children. You shall have no other gods before me, and so on. God was not onerous in his laws. He was not unreasonable in his laws. God had given it as a covenant relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people, and this is how you relate to me as my people. And they had disregarded all of those. And so if you look back at those, the covenant curses that would come, the, the, some of the consequences God announced all the way back through Moses, hundreds of years later, were things like famine, like verse 7, the standing grain has no growth, or, or the um, drying up of the fields, it'll make no flour. That would be one of the curses that God prophesied would come through Moses would come. The armies that would come upon them, uh, verse 1, the destruction of their, verse 14, of their fortified cities and, and the, their exile, their, their being sent off into various nations. All of these things were prophesied by Moses long before Hosea the prophet. And so time has passed. God has um, been patient, but judgment has come and started with Israel and soon to be with Judah. And so what are the reasons? Verse 1, that little word, because they have trespassed, and I'm going to use that as my key word tonight, reasons for judgment. God is spelling out, he's recounting why his judgment, though seemingly severe, is warranted. He's bringing forward a case as to how Israel and Judah have broken the covenant law. Now, this is hard for us because we are New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, we're Gentiles. We understand that we have a covenant relationship to King Jesus and to our God and our Father, and we understand that this covenant we are in is a covenant of grace, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet we need to remember that 
that part of the new covenant was that God would write his law upon our hearts. And as I alluded to this morning, there is this disastrous common assumption among evangelical believers in our present time, I mean right now, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, you don't have to give a thought really to learning what is pleasing and acceptable to him. In other words, you don't have to learn any of his commands. And it's as though all of the instructions in the New Testament are bonus if you want to be a super duper class uh, A, uh, uh, A plus student in, in Jesus's class. And nothing could be further from the truth. We are reconciled to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We who are lawbreakers are forgiven of our lawbreaking by the costly sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we are saved to be brought back into a right relationship with our King and our lawgiver. No, we do not earn our standing before God on the basis of our obedience to the law, but we are absolutely deceived if we think that our obedience or disobedience is of no matter to God. And in fact, as I allude to frequently in Hosea, we see in in Revelation chapter 3 and 4, Jesus rebuking various churches of new covenant churches on the basis of their obeying his word. So we are different from Israel and Judah, and we are in a new covenant of grace. Praise God. Praise God. But we too are to love the Lord our God with all our heart. So what I want to do tonight is I want to look, go through the chapter and look at these reasons for judgment, and, and they, are, of course, are stated in the negative, and what I want to do is then with you consider how might we learn tonight and, and flip these into the positive. In other words, if God is, is accusing Israel of, of violating his law or failing in some way, Let's, let's use as our application tonight, let's do the reverse. And let's consider, okay, God didn't like that. So what might he approve of? How should I respond positively? Well, the first reason for judgment that is spelled out in verse uh, 2 is that is vain prayer. Vain prayer. It's really, in a sense, if you want to say it put this way, taking the Lord's name in vain, which, of course, is violating one of the Ten Commandments. They cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. This is vain, presumptuous prayer. It's claiming to have God like a genie. They know they're not living under God's law. They have no intention of it. They order their lives however they want, and yet they presume to have that kind of relationship with God. God, we of Israel know you. This prophet Hosea, this guy, this character, he's telling us that, that we're in trouble with you, but, but God, we know you. you. You know us. And uh, tragically, how often that happens in our day, and, and we want to be careful that we don't have that relationship with God. How many just say a prayer? I think of all the funerals I've been to over the years where it was so clear that the deceased and the family and those in attendance wanted nothing to do with God. 
certainly if you asked them, are you a wretch? They would have said, no. (laughs) Where would you get such an idea? And I can't tell you how many funerals I've been at, and I'm sure others of you have witnessed this, where amazing grace is sung, and they just stand there, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And they claim some kind of relationship to God. It's vain, vain prayer. So positively, how might we think, turn this? What we want to do then is when we speak to God is speak to him truly and sincerely. This is serious business. And this is an interesting soul work at times to, in a sense, talk to ourselves first before we talk to God. To, to bring ourselves up short and say, wait a minute, time out. You're about to talk to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's not looking for fancy words and, and eloquent, all that. What he wants is, do you mean it when you're going to him right now? Or are you just going to throw his name and the name of his son around as though it's a magic charm? We want to be sincere. And when we pray to God, however brief our prayer, however seemingly mundane, we want to speak to him truly. And I tell you, I, I, this, is a, this is a challenge. I think some of you can identify with this. Even you know, our habit of praying at meals is a good habit. I think that's good. But I think in some ways we may have devolved into using prayer before meals as almost um, uh, a pharisaical kind of uh, mumbo-jumbo. Be careful with that. Um, We actually may be sinning more by just throwing around God's name and this name of Jesus than if we just ate the sandwich and thanked him afterwards. So let's not pray in vain. When we pray, let's pray. Oh, God wants us to come, and he wants us to pray. We are his children. He wants us to pour out our hearts to him. Don't let anything hinder you from prayer. But when we pray and talk to God, Let's make sure we mean business, and let's not be presumptuous. Secondly, verse 3, the second reason for judgment is Israel, God's people, rejected the good. And in this case, that good is God himself. They, They seem to run after every other form of good, all of God's gifts, but they rejected God himself. They didn't really want God. They wanted the semblance of worship. They wanted church. They wanted it to be kind of um, interesting. They wanted church to uh, be user-friendly, and so they set up visible images of Yahweh. I mean, after all, I mean, talking to a God you can't see, that's not easy. And then they set up these golden calves, these visible images that they made of Yahweh, and they set them up in not one, but two locations. It's the first form, if you will, of online worship. And if you happen to be listening to this message, I'm so glad if you're listening to our sermons on sermon audio, but don't you dare, unless you are physically, literally not able to get to worship, use these sermons as an excuse to not go and physically worship the Lord in the presence of his people. 
They rejected God. They rejected God. They rejected the good. And tragically, that is going on in our day. It's interesting, I I was just speaking to Krissa about this uh, yesterday, and maybe I referenced it this morning, I don't know, I can't remember, but I, I, it's interesting, after the days of COVID, years of COVID, and that was a massive sorting out. It's very interesting. A lot was revealed, wasn't it, during that time in, in various ways. But uh, uh, so, some people, for, for sincere health reasons, could not attend worship. But it is amazing how many folks stopped worshiping, pub, you know, going to church. And since that time... Um, as I speak to those who profess Christ, it's interesting, so often the reason to go to church is because it's, it's good for you. Well, that's true, of course. Um, I need to be at church. Um, I don't do well if I'm not worshiping the Lord. I need to sit under his word. I need to learn. I need to fellowship. All that is true. And, and we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But ultimately, we don't go to church for us. We go to church because God is good. God is the best. God is the greatest. He and his word and the promises concerning his son and his kingdom is the greatest. And so we don't want to reject the good. So so positively then, what would we, if Israel rejected the good, what we ought to do? We ought to delight in God. Delight in God. And of course, this touches on every aspect of our lives, but it first in the Bible always begins with public worship. It it, it always starts there. It always works its way out into the private ways of our lives. But we've spent the last few decades in the United States, so many denominations, trying to figure out how to get people into church. And we have dance performances and videos and all kinds of different things. And what we are have been unwilling to say Two men and women is the reason why you don't go to church is because you don't want God. That's the truth. It's not because of the chairs. It's not because of the sermons. It's because this generation is largely rejecting the good. So what do we do? We, we, do, we delight in God. And that starts with, you're here tonight, so I'm preaching to the choir but you're here tonight because you love God. You want God to know you love him. You're, you're wanting to lend your voice to the worship of God. And that means daily as we experience various gifts of God, as we enjoy ice cream, maybe a little too much, and we need to stop this time of the summer, but, but uh, ice cream or views or, or vegetables or all of the good things that God gives to us. Enjoy them as gifts from God, and then let that gift from God translate in your heart to thanks and to say to God, but oh God, I want you to know more, far more and above anything good thing that I could ever have in this life. I want you to know I long for and I want you above all else. You are my greatest good. We don't reject the good one, our God. We embrace him. We love him. And when we don't, we we just come to our senses and we stay. How how dumb is that? Why would I I 
call the greatest good something else or someone else other than God. Thirdly, the third reason for Israel's judgment in this text in verse 4 was their presumptuous leadership appointments, presumptive leadership appointments. God says they have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. Um, They did not follow God's law in relation to the appointment of kings. And we have studied in here in Sunday evenings, first and second kings, and we're actually going to come back after Hosea and complete second kings. But really, the story of second kings is largely just one disaster of a king in Israel after another. And it was because these men were self-appointed or they were just the latest popular figure. But at no point was there a national pause and a mourning and a fasting and a seeking of God as to what he would want. It was always pragmatic. And I don't think there's any application there for our nation. Sorry, uh, <laughs> don't make too much there. I think, I think we're just going to be stuck with what we're stuck with. And I think that uh, our choices come uh, a certain November, a year and a half from now, is, is just going to be uh, a form of God's judgment. We'll, we'll go there uh, in the months to come. But where we can maybe turn this positively is in the church is we want to pay close attention to what God wants in the leaders in his church. You think about this. You think about how many churches, liberal or evangelical in our day, just press on and appoint leaders without really paying attention to what King Jesus, the Lord of the church, laid down in his word. And so you have men and women pastoring churches who had no business pastoring churches because they clearly do not meet the qualifications of King Jesus's commands and qualifications for his leaders. And I think that by God's grace, we're we're trying to do that here at Reformation Bible Church. And we just, we want to be in God's will and we're praying for more leaders But in that prayer, we must resist the temptation to push ahead and merely appoint leaders because we feel the pragmatic, practical pinch. And that's the real test of faith is when we say, oh, Lord, but Lord, we need more leaders. (laughs) We look to his word and then we wait and we say, oh, Lord, our eyes are upon you. And again, I remind you that I'm, I'm excited about this this class is coming year for the men and women uh, becoming a biblical leader. I don't think that, you know, after the class, we're going to have immediately, bam, you know, some more elders and more deacons. And, but as we give ourselves to learning what the Lord requires of leaders, we are sowing seeds for years to come that by God's grace will bear the fruit of blessing for this local church. So we don't want to be presumptuous in our leadership appointments but follow the Lord's will. Uh, Fourthly, Israel was guilty. The judgment is coming because of their idolatrous worship. Idolatrous worship in verses five through seven. And that was most visibly evident in the calf that was at Samaria and then the other one that was at Bethel. Um, 
Samaria was the capital city of the break-off nation of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and um, God rejected that worship. Of course he did, because what's, what's the second commandment? You shall not make any graven images. <laughs> uh, so th- this isn't too hard to figure out, and, and you, you think that somebody would have read the story of Exodus and remembered uh, the story of Aaron making the golden calf. Um, this is absolute folly, but it just shows you how strong the pull of pragmatism. What is pragmatism? I use that word a lot. It means determining what you will do, for example, with your church by what people in the world want, what, what seemingly works. You don't think first, what does God's word teach us? You sit around in a focus group, you study business uh, journals, um, and you learn what the pulse of the common uh, current um, desires are, and you you remake your church to like a business to meet those wants and wishes. Um, that's really, as I've already said, the calf worship, the worshiping the golden calves, was really just a form of of catering to the sinful heart, to the desire of sinful men and women not to have a God that they can't see, not to relate to a God by the reading and the preaching of his word, but rather for it to be visible and tangible, which is why you have this day. Roman Catholic churches, by and large, are filled with images And I'm not saying that all artwork and all images in churches are wrong. But we are, by God's design, to be a word people. And as Protestant Christians, there's a reason why there's a pulpit where the word of God is central. This is how God has commanded us to worship him in the New Covenant church. So if they were judged for idolatrous worship, we want to worship God according to his word. Um, among the Reformation and among those who, who uh, the historic Protestant Reformation, the, the principle is called the regulative principle. And there's been a lot of debate on that over the years. But the idea is simply that our worship as a church ought to be regulated, determined not by what we want it to be, but by the word of God. And by God's grace, you see that here. There's variations. Not every biblical church looks exactly the same. But where you have a biblical church, you will have the people of God, Christians meeting together. You will have them singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Why? Because it's commanded in the New Testament. You'll have the reading of Scripture. Why? Because it's commanded in the New Testament. You'll have the preaching of the Scriptures. Why? Because it's commanded in the New Testament. You'll have praying. Why? Because it's commanded in the New Testament. And this is our worship. No more, no less. So we want to worship God truly, not according to our own design, but as he has commanded a fifth reason for judgment to come upon Israel was their reliance upon others in verses 8 through 10. They, 
they would be scattered, God said. That would be their judgment. Why? Because they would be scattered to the nations. They would be um, enslaved and hauled off like cattle dispersed to other nations. Why? Because instead of trusting in God, they trusted in those nations. It's as though, and one of them was, the chief ones, was Assyria. And the, the judgment of God was that Assyria, that Israel looked to to protect them at this point, would be the very nation that would crush them. And in 722 B.C., 722 years before the birth of Christ, the Assyrians overran Israel in the north, hauled off their people into exile, brought in foreigners, and that is why even in Jesus' day, the people from that region were called Samaritans, and the reason that they were looked down upon is because the Assyrians, nearly 800 years earlier, had brought in Gentiles, and there had been an intermingling, and so um, Israel the tribes were essentially lost by their identity. They're known to God, but they relied upon other nations. And so how might we turn this around positively? Well, first, we run to recognize how quick we are to rely on others or our money or our health or our resources before we are in God. This this is our sinful inclination. So positively, as we come to our moments of need as a church, as individuals, let us look to the Lord. Right now, as a church, I shared at our members' meeting this past Wednesday uh, evening that uh, God has blessed us in so many ways, but we are in a particularly um, uh, pressing time of need in that, uh, for various reasons, we now have only 38 members in this church, 38 active and present members. And of those 38 present and active, some of them live quite a distance away or are of a physical condition that they're not able to help. So when you really look at uh, the number of families that we have, households that are able to really serve this church at this time it is very few. And here we are in the middle of a renovation project. Here we are, we have uh, for our church lots of new visitors coming. And I'm looking to the Lord saying right now with some of you, oh Lord, how are you going to provide? And I don't know and you don't know, but we want to ask him. We don't want to look to ourselves. This is certainly true in our personal lives our first impulse ought to be to go to the Lord in prayer before we go anywhere else. A sixth reason why uh, Israel was to be judged was, was, again, sinful worship or unacceptable worship, very similar to what we already examined in um, verse 5, the idolatrous worship. But in verse 11, God says they've multiplied altars for sin. So they didn't just have the the altars at Samaria and Bethel, they, they had altars everywhere. Again, it was a very user-friendly kind of religion. Sound familiar? And these altars that they presumed were altars that pleased Yahweh, they, they were actually, in many cases, presuming to worship the God of Israel when he had commanded them how he was to be worshipped. And God says, actually, all you're doing is multiplying your sin. So again, we want to offer up to God acceptable worship. 
we want to offer up to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship in New Covenant terms? Well, first of all, it's a shock to some people that that's actually in New Covenant worship, when churches like ours worship, New Testament churches, it's a shock to many evangelicals that to God there's even a form of acceptable and unacceptable worship. But God forbid, we, we actually can as a church worship God on a Sunday and God essentially says, I don't want that. Whatever that was, I'm not sure what that was, but that was not worthy of me. You can keep that. You get rid of that. I don't want that. What a, what a thought that ought to frighten us. You can't just meet, do something, and presume that God's happy with it. With spouses, we, we know that's, that's the case, right? I mean, you can just go through the motions, husbands, and maybe like give a gift to your wife. <laughs> but if there was no heart in it, if it was obvious that there was no thought in it, if it was obvious that you really were doing it to cover your, you know, your own, uh, uh, you know, get yourself out of trouble, uh, keep yourself out of trouble, then, then she's not going to receive it because it wasn't from the heart and it wasn't really for her. So we want to offer up to God acceptable worship. What does he want? He tells us again and again he wants humility. He wants sincerity. This means that we come with a heart to worship the Lord. This means that worship is not an afterthought. I'm really concerned about that in our day. I think that because of our culture of entertainment, people somehow think that if I just get myself out of bed and I somehow get my body there, and I'm just there observing something that somehow I'm fulfilling the, the command to worship God. No. It has to have some thought to it. You got to say to yourself, self, you're going to worship your king and your God this morning or this evening. What are you going to do? What are you going to offer up to him? What kind of heart are you going to bring to your worship today. We were talking earlier this week, uh, I was meeting with some young men, we were talking about how difficult prayer is. Oh, prayer is hard, isn't it? It's a form of worship. Prayer is not easy necessarily. I mean, sometimes it's easy because you're, you're, you're aware of your need, your heart's in it, but you know there's times when man especially maybe the beginning of the day or maybe the elder or the pastor is, is, is praying and you're having a hard time following so look, when you're praying, for example, in a worship service, if I'm leading you in prayer, I know very well, because I've sat where you sat, that I have to, like, while I'm there, not audibly out loud, but I have to get myself in hand, as it were, and, and say, whatever this man is saying, if he's leading me in the prayer of my God, I'm going to give my attention. I'm just, it's a battle. I'm shutting out other things right there, and I'm giving myself. We are talking to God right now. It's work. So we want to offer up to God acceptable worship, humble worship, sincere worship, worship especially that is offered up in the name of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't come to God humbly in reliance upon the name of Jesus, then our worship is, is vain. If we come without love, right? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. We can, we can worship and sing and pray all we want, but if we have not love, it's like a, a, an offensive noise or gong in the ears of God. And so 
we want to offer up acceptable worship. Two more reasons in closing tonight. A seventh reason that judgment was coming upon Israel was willful ignorance of the Bible, if you will. Willful ignorance of God's law. Willful ignorance. I mean willful. God says, this is a very powerful line. This is one of those verses, verse 12. If you have, if you underline your Bible, this verse might be worth underlining. God says, though I wrote for Israel, for him, 10,000 precepts of my law, they are counted as a strange thing. Why is God saying 10,000? Because his, his point is, It doesn't matter how many times I repeat my laws. It doesn't matter how many illustrations I give. It doesn't matter how many prophets I send or preachers to explain it. It doesn't matter. My people consider my word as a strange thing. And what an indictment upon the modern evangelical church. You're here tonight listening to the preaching of Hosea. We're giving attention and we're trying to say, oh God, we don't believe this is a strange thing. But with the neglect of the preaching of the Old Testament and particularly the prophets in the modern church, a vast portion of the Bible is considered to be in our day practically a strange thing. There's a lot of talk, especially among modern reformed types in the evangelical church, and I consider myself to be among those reformed types, but I'm saying there's a lot of talk about sola scriptura, back to the Bible, and we got to preach the word of God and so forth. And then you ask yourself the question, seriously, how much of God's Bible is actually being read, taught, and preached in your average church? And if you survey it and you look at the bulletins, or the sermons over the span of a few years, you'll find that it is a precious little. Why? Because preachers are guilty, but it's also true that preacher and people consider vast portions of God's word, the Bible, to be a strange thing. It's not really practical from my weak. I'm not really sure how that relates. I'm sure some Old Testament scholar somewhere off at seminary needs to know Hosea, but I'm not really sure I do. Positively, then what do we do? We do what you're doing tonight. I assure you again, I say this many times, I, I tell you I would not be here tonight preaching Hosea if you weren't here. You are making the preaching of God's word possible. Remember that. You are partners with me and with every preacher of God's word This means that we don't consider any portion of God's word to be strange. It may be more difficult. It may be more challenging. But we say to all of it, oh God, thank you. Thank you for giving us what you gave us. No more, no less. None of it is strange. In fact, your word, all of it to us is beautiful, magnificent, instructive, good for our teaching, for our correction, for our reproof, for our training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. And then finally tonight, the eighth reason that Israel was judged was forgetting his maker. Israel, God says, verse 14, has forgotten his maker. Wow. He's forgotten his maker while building self-projects, I'll call them. So it's not that Israel's brainless or Judah they notice verse 14, Israel and Judah are mentioned. 
So God's indicting both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Both kingdoms by this point had already forgotten their maker, the one who formed them as nations. He's not just talking about who created them individually. That is true. He is the maker of every man and woman. But it is God who made Israel. Remember that? It's God who called Abraham out of Ur. It's God who gave to Jacob, Israel, those sons that became the tribes of Israel. Israel's forgotten his maker. And so what we might, how might we flip this around and have a positive application tonight? Let's remember our maker. And let's remember that every one of us, he is really our maker in three ways for the believer. He is your maker, first of all, physically. He's the one who literally created you out of the dust, as it were. Of course, you weren't made like Adam out of the dust, and you weren't made like Eve out of the rib. But essentially, God is your maker. We understand that in the womb, we are fearfully and wonderfully, what? Made, formed by God. He's our maker physically. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he's your maker, your creator spiritually. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. You are a son and daughter. You are an heir of the kingdom. Why? Because God made you to be in Christ. And then thirdly, you are part of his church. And it is Christ who's made us. It's Christ who's the builder. He's the one who's forming us into a people for his own possession. And so we dare not forget our maker Let's remember him continually, sincerely, reverently as we read the news, as we, as we get caught up with different interests. All of that is good insofar as they are innocent. But in all things, let us not forget God. Let us remember our maker with thanks and with gladness and with joy so that we as his church might not receive his disapproval, that we might not be disciplined by the Lord Jesus, but instead be a church that he loves, a church that is after his own heart. May God make it so. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all your word, and it is no strange thing to us, sometimes challenging, but we thank you tonight that um, through Israel's sin and your judgment of her, that we have been warned, that we have been instructed. And now, oh God, we pray, help us to remember these things. Thank you for them so far as they are reminders. And may our lives this week reflect some of the lessons we've learned. We pray it sincerely in the name of your son, Jesus, our King. Amen.